Hello, and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Savaris. It is the Monday edition of the show, the week of St. Patrick's Day. Big, big week in sports. The NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament begins on Friday. That's the round of 64. The playing games are during the week, of course. But today's episode will be in the wonderful world of the NHL. And I've got it structured very straightforward. These are the five big questions I have about the league based on about 25 to 30 games. Every team is somewhere in that ballpark. Some teams have had COVID cancellations. Some teams haven't. But every team has had their schedule fluctuated a little bit. So not everyone has a comparable amount of games yet. The Devils and Sabres specifically, even though they're in 7th and 8th respectively in the East Division right now, they're still close to the bottom in terms of games played. It'll take them a while to make up. Pretty much every team in the NHL right now is playing a game every other day, or they're playing two games in three nights. It's going to be a real grind here. You are going to see who has mental fortitude, who has good structural hockey, what teams are mentally tough that even though their bodies are physically exhausted, they have the right structure, the right awareness, just the right levels of hockey IQ to survive in this kind of grueling environment. And yeah, I know this is a very taxing environment that the players are dealing with pretty rough conditions that they're not allowed to have much of a personal life right now. They're not allowed to do anything other than play hockey, practice, and travel with the team. So all of this stuff is magnified now. There, There's no, there's no hiding because you're only playing the teams in your division. There's no, oh, it's fine. We're going to have plenty of time to make up ground. We're halfway. Most teams are at least halfway through the season at this point. We're looking at about two months more of regular season hockey, and it's going to be some ride for quite a few of these teams. You would not believe some of the things you would see in the standings right now. I mean, yeah, it makes sense that the Toronto Maple Leafs are in first place after about halfway through the regular season in the North Division, but what does not make sense are some of the other standings. If you had told me before the season started that the Hurricanes would be ahead of the Lightning in the standings, I thought that that's probably unlikely. But, you know, Tampa Bay doesn't have Nikita Kucherov. Okay, sure, maybe. You might be able to talk me into that. Vegas, first place in the Western Division. Makes sense, yeah. The Wild? The Minnesota Wild being second in the West Division ahead of Colorado? Yeah, granted, Colorado had some COVID issues. They missed a few games. They got to catch up. So did Minnesota, to be fair. The one that really jumps out, of course, is the Islanders being in first place by four points after Sunday's games. The Islanders pulled out a win against the Devils late. Kind of a fluky offsides call that went the Islanders' way, but I don't work for the league office. If I did, there'd be a lot better officiating. Just wanted to get that out there. Gary Bettman, if you're listening, I am available. I, I could do a better job as head of official for those uh, booth reviews where your referees still don't seem to know the rules. All that said, this is a very fun episode. I really put a lot of work into this outline. There's some good nuggets in here. Gotta remind everyone, please help grow the show any means possible. Subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. Leave a written review. Both of those help the show trend on the charts. If it trends in the hockey column, that'd be great. If it trends in just general sports, that would be great. More people find us, more people listen, 
the easier it is to get better guests on the show, and the more guests I get, the more the show grows. Got some good guests lined up for this week already. Going to have a Calgary Flames episode, which will segue nice into the first thing I want to talk about on the show today. But Flames episode, we'll probably have a baseball episode, and I'm trying to line up a college basketball episode, because I'll be honest with you, I watched about 10 regular season college basketball games and a handful of the conference tournament games this past weekend, but wholesale, aside from me knowing that Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan are pretty good, I don't know a lot, so I'm going to have to get some outside expertise to come lend a hand there. Also, got to circle back around, finish the housekeeping. If you're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Audioboom, any of those other podcasting platforms, throw a follow. That stuff helps. And I will have a blog up on Gotham SN at some point Monday or Tuesday. Depends how long it takes me to edit this episode of the podcast to get it together and then finish the Ryan Strom blog, get it to an editor, get it ran through, get it looked through, make a little tweaks, add some metadata to some images, you know, the exciting stuff as a content creator. Get that out there. Trying to understand Ryan Strom's production, where it comes from, and if he's doing anything differently in New York than he did in either his stop in Edmonton or the team that drafted him with the New York Islanders. Okay, I will see you guys on the other side of this drop, and I can't believe the Islanders are in first place, man. Oliver Wallstrom in on Wedgwood, he scores! Wow. And the Islanders in a shootout stretch their win streak to nine games. And with that, the first question I have at kind of the NHL's halfway point this season is, what the hell is the North Division? I say that kind of facetiously because obviously the style of hockey is pretty different from what's going on in a lot of the league i say this kind of in a way that's it's reminiscent of how each individual league in europe has a different style of soccer whether you want to talk about the german bundesliga syria in italy the (laughs) the uber eats league one in france or the barclays premier league in england or La Liga in Spain, they all have slightly different styles because the different players from each country play a little bit differently. The managers, the clubs, all of them are designed to play a little bit differently, different styles. And that's kind of what happens this year in the NHL because all of these teams are only playing each other. The North Division is up-tempo, fast-paced, Scoring chance festival, not a lot of defensive play, even from quality defensemen. The goaltending, aside from Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg, has been very streaky. And in general, the teams at large have been extremely streaky thus far into the season, where each team has kind of had a run. When the season first started, the Montreal Canadiens came out of the gate flying. Best in the league, expected goals for, expected goals against. We're getting superhuman goaltending from Jake Allen, 940 save percentage. They were shooting over 10% as a team, meaning on 10% of the shots they took on goal, they were scoring goals, which is a little high. Usually the team is going to be closer to 9% as opposed to 10, but anything over 9, you'd expect to come a little down. But Montreal hit their wall. They fired Claude Julien a couple of weeks ago now. Claude Julien is a pretty good hockey coach. He won a cup with the Bruins back in 2011. He's done two separate stints in Montreal. 
always very strong, even strength play. Pretty bad special teams was the main reason that um, Mark Bergevin, the Canadiens GM, gave for Julian's dismissal. Provoked uh, Ducharme. And one of the things you'll learn if you are only a casual hockey fan or just not really a hockey fan at all is that if you're going to be head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, you need to speak French, and it severely limits the pool of guys they can hire. That's why they've hired Claude Julien two separate times to be their head coach. There just aren't as many Francophone coaches in hockey as there are English-speaking coaches, and because the media in Montreal is both English and French, the team stubbornly insists it needs to have a coach who's bilingual instead of just having, you know, a coach who speaks English and then a translator, which would be perfectly fine in today's day and age. I don't think anyone would mind that someone didn't speak French, but things are different in Quebec. Montreal had their run. Winnipeg has gone on a run lately, last couple weeks. Winnipeg came in really nice, played a really good series against the Leafs, stole a couple points. Connor Hellebuck, their goaltender, won the Vezina last year, is an extremely talented goaltender. And Winnipeg, their defense has given up a lot of scoring chances, and Hellebuck has masked a lot of their problems. But that's the story of a lot of that division. It's basically whatever team's goaltender shows up that particular night is winning. I mean, we saw it again on Sunday night before the Grammys. The Maple Leafs lost to the Ottawa Senators. You know, like the worst team in the league, aside from the Red Wings, Ottawa Senators, with Timmy Stutzel, Brady Kachok, not much else other than that, Thomas Shabbat, Josh Norris. Not a whole lot going on up in Ottawa. I mean, the... The Leafs lost to a goaltender who didn't know he was going to play in the game until warm-ups. Actually, you know what? I'm going to throw in the net, the VO here. Uh, Joey Decord, the, go- the goalie for the Senators on Sunday night, he didn't know he was going to play until warm-ups that night because their starter told the coach he wasn't going to be able to play, and he got the word in warm-ups, and yeah, it wasn't pretty, but Ottawa won 4-3. to Ah, uh, going to get emotional. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, definitely not the way I drew it up, uh, you know, in my head. Uh, but against the Leafs, um, you know, at home, um, obviously a crazy situation, and um, that's why you always got to be ready. And uh, <laughs> I just tried to get in the game and, and get myself going as fast as possible, and the boys played unbelievable. Like, oh, what an effort out of our group. I'm, uh, I don't even have words right now, honestly. I just want to thank my family and uh for everything they've done for me, it's uh, yeah, pretty special. Again, it's a matter of what team's goaltender shows up on that particular night or what team's defense is going to be slightly less bad. I think that's basically what that division is going to come down to because talent-wise, the Leafs are far and away the most talented team in that division, not even close. Just Their top six is just so much better than everyone else's top six. And then you go to the tertiary parts for Toronto, where they finally have a decent group of six defensemen. Morgan Riley, TJ Brody, Jake Muzzin, Justin Hole, Travis Thurmont, and Zach Bogosian. They're not incredible, but they're all decent. And that's why the defensive lapses are so frustrating, and it's why Freddie Anderson has to get frustrated at times, because the talent is there. The team has more than enough talent to control the flow of play at even strength, and Things like giving up two goals in 17 seconds on Sunday night against Ottawa can't be having that. And I understand it's been a weird season. I understand that the Leafs are exhausted, that they're playing every day, every other day. They're playing two games in three nights. 
So is everyone else. You don't get to make those excuses, unfortunately. And a lot of what's gone on in the North Division, it's it's come down to goaltending. It's come down to whatever team's defense wasn't the most leaky. And it's come down to what coaches can figure it out. I mean, I always figured Winnipeg would at some point get it together. They have too much talent. Then they went and traded for Pierre-Luc Dubois. Paul Maurice is a pretty good hockey coach. He can be kind of stubborn at times and stick into lineups that aren't working. But when you're talking about a team that's got Mark Shifley, Blake Wheeler, Pierre-Luc Dubois, Nikolai Ehlers, Kyle Connor, Adam Lowry, there's just too much talent on that team at forward to not be decent. The defense leaves a lot to be desired. They, they're not horrendous. They're not as bad as as what we've seen from Vancouver or Edmonton or even Calgary at stretches this year. Neil Pionk, the former Ranger, he's decent at even strength now. He's close to a 50% in terms of scoring chances. He's still pretty bad defensively. Josh Morrissey is okay. He's decent. He's not as good as he used to be playing with Jacob Truba. They got that guy they drafted in the first round, Vili Hanola, a year or so ago, who's not bad, but... Winnipeg probably needs another defenseman. I know a lot of people want to talk about Matthias Ekholm. Uh, I'm going to talk, even I'm going to talk about Ekholm a little bit later on in the episode, but I really don't know what to make of that division because it really does seem like anyone can beat anyone on any given night, even though there are talent gaps. I mean, Ottawa hasn't been impressive this year, but they beat Montreal, they beat Edmonton, they beat Toronto. I mean... If you're a team that has Stanley Cup aspirations like the Leafs, you can't be losing multiple games out of eight to Ottawa. Come on now. Ottawa's actively trying to lose to win more Magic Ping Pong Balls so they can get either Owen Power or or Luke Hughes. Ottawa has no interest in winning hockey games as an organization. Sure, the guys on the ice, the coach, they want to win so they're not lamented as like the worst team in the league or the worst team in the history of the franchise, but... Wholesale, you're Toronto. If you can't take care of business on a random Saturday in March, what are you gonna do when you gotta play the Bruins or the Islanders or or the Golden Knights or the Blues? What are you gonna do if you gotta play a team that's better than you? Toronto is the best team far and away in terms of talent, and they can't consistently beat mediocre to bad teams. And yes, I understand the style of play is different, so teams are more inclined to create offense which leaves their defense more vulnerable. But at some point, I would like Sheldon Keefe and the Toronto Maple Leafs to put it together. I understand Austin Matthews, his wrist is still a little bit dinged up. He hasn't been shooting as much, but you're still talking about Matthews, Nylander, Marner, Tavares. Alex Kerfoot is a really good number three center. You're talking about Zach Hyman, who's emerged as a really strong play driver at even strength, even though he's not one of those marquee names. He's in the top 10 of offensive war of all forwards in the NHL right now, which is pretty impressive for someone who, you know, doesn't get as much acclaim as the rest of his teammates. And then you got the rest of the spare parts. You're talking Joe Thornton, Jimmy Vesey, Wayne Simmons should be coming back from his injury in a few weeks. That Toronto team is as talented as any in the league. It's in the second tier of good teams. I'd say Vegas is more talented. I'd say Colorado. I'd say Boston, all more talented. Tampa Bay with Kucherov, more talented. But Toronto can play with anyone on any given night. It's just a matter of how consistent they're going to be. Because 
I say this a lot with the Rangers, and it's not as true with Toronto because they're not really a young team anymore, even though, like, by age, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander are all young, relatively speaking. They've been in the playoffs multiple times each now. Uh, there, There's no more excuses for the Maple Leafs. If they do not win at least two playoff series this year, I would not be surprised to see their general manager manager Kyle Dubas trade Nylander or Morgan Riley in hopes of shaking up their roster a little bit and getting a little bit more depth dispersed throughout their entire lineup. And then you also have teams in that division that are just kind of trying to figure themselves out. Calgary fired their coach Jeff Ward last week, and they brought in Daryl Sutter, who'd been out of coaching for a number of years. Sutter, the former Los Angeles Kings coach who won a pair of Stanley Cups earlier this decade in L.A., he's been out of the game a while now. And I, I get it. The options were a little bit limited for uh, for teams in Canada in general because you can't hire a coach who's living in the United States right now because it'd be two weeks before they could get there. It's why Montreal promoted an assistant coach to head coach, and it's probably why Calgary hired Daryl Sutter. Yes, Daryl Sutter was there previously in Calgary. He had a stint. Way back in the day, we're talking about 17 years ago now, which sounds crazy to say. Daryl Sutter was the Flames coach the year they lost the Stanley Cup Finals to the Tampa Bay Lightning, the 2003-2004, the year before the lockout. Daryl Sutter was the coach of the Calgary Flames back then. And weirdly enough, that was the last game ever played NHL game played on ESPN. And NHL's back on ESPN, and Daryl Sutter's back in Calgary. Weird how all that kind of symmetry works. Vancouver... They overachieved last year getting to the Western Conference Finals to play Dallas. It was always going to be a matter of how good their goaltending would be. Thatcher Demko is pretty damn good. He's stolen a handful of games for them, but their defense, man. Tyler Myers has been bad. Quinn Hughes has not been as good as he was last year. You're talking about a lineup that's extremely top-heavy. You're talking about a team that has an $11 million fourth line. A team that's really, really dependent on the play of Brock Besser. Who, granted, I think Brock Besser is a very good player. One of my favorite players in the entire league. A guy who should be on Team USA in the Olympics next year. Someone who's a really good shooter of the puck. They've been without Elias Pettersson for about a week now. The guy who won the Calder Trophy two years ago. One of the better shooters of the puck in the entire league. Someone who's a legitimate 40-goal threat in a full season. But it just hasn't really worked in Vancouver. Their head coach, Travis Green, has a lot, a lot of heat on him, as does their general manager, Jim Benning, who might both end up getting fired at the end of the season if things can get back to some semblance of normal and Vancouver can kind of bank on revenues getting back to normal and the salary cap increasing, therefore giving them the ability to make some more roster moves because right now Vancouver just doesn't have the cap flexibility to make any moves, and they'd have to trade one of their good players, like a Besser, like a Pedersen, someone who's a positive to their lineup, uh, Bo Horvat even, their center, their captain. You're going to have to trade someone good to move a bad contract, and Vancouver's not in a position to do that because they still need more stuff. They had to let guys go in the offseason. They had to let Jacob Markstrom leave in free agency. They had to let Troy Stetcher leave in free agency, and both those guys were key pieces in those in that run last year deep into the playoffs. And while I think Vancouver has the upside of a playoff team, they're not getting the superhuman goaltending they did in the playoffs last year, and that's really the dramatic difference. 
a lot of people in the analytics, the advanced stats community in hockey have really been harping on it this season that goaltending is such a volatile position. You really can't bank on it year to year unless you have a genuine, genuine bona fide legend like a Henrik Lundqvist who's able to cover up mistakes for an entire decade and you really don't have to worry about anything. You just pencil that name in on your depth chart and you can worry about the rest of your roster. Carey Price, not really doing that right now. Matt Murray in Ottawa, not really doing that right now. Any of the goalies you want to pull out of a hat in Dallas, not doing it right now. Goaltending is extremely volatile and not something you can count on. Edmonton, Toronto, these are teams with deep. Freddie Anderson's a pretty good goalie. And speaking of the North Division, I can't go without talking about the Oilers for one second here. One of the more entertaining teams in all of sports to watch right now, if you don't have access to Connor McDavid, you're genuinely missing out on someone who can do superhuman things on any given night. Just him performing a zone entry on the power play where he just darts through everyone because he's so much faster than everyone else. At the end of the game on Saturday night, the Oilers were playing the 10 o'clock game on Hockey Night in Canada. They were down a goal about two and a half minutes. No, they were down a goal four minutes or so to go in the game. McDavid, Dreisaitl, Nugent Hopkins, Darnell Nurse, and the fifth guy was Kyler Yamamoto. They were out there a solid two minutes in the offensive zone trying to score five on four because they had a power play. Vancouver kept stunning him out, stunning him out. The scoring chances that Edmonton is able to create because McDavid draws so much attention to himself, both as a passer and a shooter, creates so much more space for everyone else. Then, about two minutes to go, we got a stoppage in play. Vancouver's goalie, Thatcher Demko, sits on the puck. We got a pause in play. Edmonton uses their timeout because McDavid and Dreisaitl have been out there two full two full minutes, and they're going to be out there another two minutes till the end of the game. They're out there. Tyson Berry is out there. Nugent Hopkins is out there. And the fifth guy, they have Pugliarvi out there at one point. But they pull the goalie. They go six on four. Excuse me, six on five. Six on five. Edmonton has the puck for two minutes straight. And they are just whipping the puck around. McDavid is skating at the far left circle. He rips a shot. Demko makes a save. Rattles into the corner. Yamamoto gets it in the corner. Up to the point to Tyson Barry. Barry over to McDavid. McDavid tries to thread it through Rainbow Road across the crease, across to Dreisaitl in the other circle. Dreisaitl misses the net. Goes back around. Edmonton appointment television every single night. I was captivated, and Edmonton didn't even tie the game. They ended up losing a game they really should have won, and what McDavid and Dreisaitl do on every single night is insane. They gotta get those guys some help, man. Get them a goalie, get them another defenseman, get them a third-line center. That way you can separate the two of them. They can both drive their own lines, and Edmonton can finally make a playoff run so more people than just in the Edmonton market and people with the National Hockey Package are able to see McDavid play hockey. A kid is a freak, a certified freak. Fastest kid alive, elite stick handler, and pretty good shot. Not an Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon level shot, but he's so fast and his hands are so fast, he's able to deke so well. He doesn't need to be an elite shooter, and he's finally shooting more, which is a good thing. And something I did want to talk about briefly here is that 
a lot of the time, Edmonton is having their possessions end in point shots from defensemen. Don't you think a team with some high-end talent like Nugent Hopkins, Dreisaitl, McDavid, even guys like Pujarvi or Tyler Ennis even, you'd rather have one of those guys shooting somewhere closer to the net as opposed to Tyson Berry or a Darnell Nurse slap shot? I think so. I, I, I really do want to explore this idea I've had in my head a little bit recently where I've been thinking how come hockey teams don't operate their offenses similar to basketball teams where you only want certain players taking certain shots in certain situations. If you're desperately trying to tie a game and you've only got a minute and a half or so left, a slap shot from the point is not accurate, especially considering you're going to have a rugby scrum in front of the net and I understand you're shooting for a rebound in hopes that someone can score a greasy goal, but at the same time, I'm a little bit more inclined to just let McDavid try and stick handle or McDavid to pass someone else open by him having the puck on his stick from a better area than a slap shot from a defenseman, especially someone like Tyson Berry, who is still decent, but he's not as good as he used to be and his shot isn't as accurate. His shooting percentage is around like 3-4%. You really... a forward shoots usually somewhere between 7 and 12%. Sometimes it's really high or really low relative to that. But defensemen, they take a lot of low percentage shots, not likely to result in goals. I, again, that's to try and generate rebounds or deflections. But I want to see a hockey team try and run their offense like a basketball team in terms of where they have guys shoot from because it's that guy as opposed to just, this guy's open, take a shot. And I understand the nature, you want your defenseman to take that shot at points, but when it's not working, try something different. This is another thing I wanted to explore a little bit is, do teams really have plan A, plan B, plan C? Or is that me more of a case of thinking everything like American football where there genuinely are counters to everything? Or is it more like soccer where you only have a plan A and it's about making your plan A better as opposed to having a plan B? Is it more about executing what you're supposed to be doing as opposed to changing what you're doing? Going to work on that. Going to reach out to a few people I know might be able to give me a bit of a better answer on that. And wrapping up on this division... Well, I've already done 20 minutes talking about the Canadian division. But yeah, it. I've been watching as much hockey as I ever have in my life. Probably more, to be honest. I'm watching four or five hockey games every single day. I'm really enjoying the North division because every single game is entertaining. Because even the games with the Senators are still good. Because the Senators are entertaining. Where they have things like Joey Decord stealing a game against the Leafs on a Sunday night when everyone else is worried about the Grammys. Yeah, North Division, big success. I would like to see it stay, but I doubt it happens. Now, transitioning to the next thing I have here. This is one I didn't really see coming. If you had told me before the season that, you know, the Islanders were going to win the East Division, I would have assumed someone else in the division had a pretty bad injury. Not that I don't think the Islanders are good. They're obviously good. Their results are good. Their process is good. They play a sustainable style of hockey. They always have. Barry Trotz is a very, 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 very good hockey coach who gets good results from solid players and elite results from great players. And it's genuinely, it's not entertaining hockey. I know, I know, I know. It's easy for me as a Ranger fan to critique the Islanders for this. Ethan, Bones, sorry, but 
What the Islanders do is very comparable to what soccer teams do if they do not have as much high-end talent as the other team. They drop guys back, they try and force the other team to the perimeter, and force them to settle for bad shots. They're content with giving up shots, they just don't want to give them up from good areas. And then, once they've absorbed the pressure and have forced the turnover, they're very good on the counterattack. They've got good passing defensemen, they're able to transition quickly. They don't have a ton of team speed, like I'd say the Rangers are a faster team, but the Islanders execute their breakouts so well. We saw it a lot in the playoffs last year, especially in the Flyers series, where the Islanders were able to absorb sustained pressure and then break out really fast and then create chances for someone like Anthony Bovillier to score, someone like Barzal, who's one of the best transition players in the entire league. He's right there. I mean, aside from McDavid and McKinnon, Barzal, top three, four skater in all of hockey, insanely fast. He's shooting more than ever, which helps because... The Islanders don't have a ton of true shooting talent, guys. The Anders Lee knee injury is extremely problematic. He's one of their best players. He's one of the best net front players in the entire league. He's, he's better than Kreider, I would say. He's probably better than James Van Riemsdyk and the Flyers. A really good player for the Islanders. Someone, their captain. And they don't know when he'll be back. I'd assume they'll be active in the trade market. They needed another winger before the Anders Lee injury. And then Sunday, before the game against the Devils, Jean-Gabriel Peugeot got pulled, put on the COVID list. Not sure if it's a true positive, if it's contact tracing, if it's an inconclusive test. The NHL doesn't specify. I like to think we'll get a better idea on Monday. He'll have another test. Maybe he pops a negative and it was just a, po a false positive on Sunday. Maybe he was near someone who tested positive and they had to pull him from the game. We'll see. Wholesale speaking about the Islanders, they do a few things really well. Number one, they clog the neutral zone. They do not let you get through the neutral zone with speed. They make you dump the puck around them, go chase, and then play the puck in the corner and get banged in the corner. Islanders are one of the few teams left in the league who still play physical along the boards, who throw a lot of hits, and they've got good defensemen, man. Uh, Adam Pellick, Ryan Pulak, both pretty good. Noah Dobson, a first-round draft choice from a few years ago, has played pretty well for them. Nick Letty has had a nice late-career resurgence on a pretty bad contract, but he's playing pretty well, all of that said. I don't... Again, any team can do anything in the playoffs because weird things happen in the playoffs. I, I mean... We saw it last year. The Flyers, on paper, were more talented than the Islanders. The Islanders beat them pretty convincingly. In the conference finals, the Islanders are a Brock Nelson goal away from forcing a Game 7 against a very talented Lightning team that went on to win the Stanley Cup in pretty convincing fashion. Circling back, more concrete numbers things. When we talk about the Islanders, the big thing is their expected goals and their high-danger scoring chances for and against. Okay, let's talk about it abstractly. Expected goals is a calculation based on where a shot is taken from on the ice and the likelihood of that shot resulting in a goal in terms of a percentage. Each individual shot has a value associated with it. That value is added up at the end of the game. 
And then the other team's value of all those shots added up is put together. You put all that together into one thing. That's your total expected goals for the game. And then you divide each team by that number, and that's your expected goals percentage. You want to have more than 50% of the goals because that would mean you're more likely than not to have won the game. There are teams who score less than they are expected to. Those are teams we expect to eventually score more. And then the opposite happens. Teams score more than they are expected to, and eventually they regress. Right now, the Islanders are 6th in the league in expected goals percentage, 53.65. And their high danger chances for, which is the area where they're scoring, creating scoring chances from, below the faceoff dots to the goal mouth in a trapezoid inside that space, that is your high danger chance for those are more valuable than chances from the perimeter along the boards or up at the point around the blue line or above the circles because those are more likely to result in goals. That's what you want. Barry Trotz teams, they always are very good below the goal line at creating chances, getting the pucks to the net, and they don't give up a lot of those. Their defensemen historically, going back to his time in Washington, his time in Nashville, he has always had his defensemen in front of that net, and they are not giving up anything. You can't pass through the middle of the ice against the Islanders. It is so difficult. And you see it time and time again when the Islanders play high-skill teams. They've really done a nice job of this against the Bruins in the regular season thus far this season. Teams with high-quality players like to pass through the middle of the ice because it creates a, a movement. The goalie has to move laterally across his crease to the other post, and it's more likely you're going to catch him out of position because he's moving, that is where you end up with high-end players who are able to make those passes more likely to result in goals because they are dangerous scoring chances or higher expected goal scoring chances. If you take that away from some of these high-end teams like the Bruins or teams with a lot of high-end skill, I know the Rangers run into this problem a lot. If you take away that middle of the ice against talented teams, they don't really have alternatives. They don't know what to do if they can't make that cross-crease pass to the other side and have someone rocket home a shot. They're not good at creating the cycle goals. They're not good at creating the point shot goals. If the high-end teams can't do that, it makes the Islanders dangerous come postseason time. That, and they get good goaltending. Varlamov's not amazing, but he's an above-average goaltender. And what I've seen in... Limited spurts of Sorokin. I've been impressed. He's fine for a rookie goaltender. He doesn't look out of his depth at any point. He's aggressive at playing the puck, and that's fine. You know, he's an athletic goalie. He's got pretty good mobility. His rebound control is solid. Okay glove. Decent stick. Okay at handling the puck. Pretty talented guy. Pretty blue chipper. Someone we expected to eventually come over from Russia. We'll have to see what the Islanders do. They have an interesting cap situation going forward, but the Islanders... Alright, let's look a little bit at their schedule, because this is where it gets a little bit interesting. They've got two games left with the Devils, two games left with the Penguins, four with Washington, two with Buffalo, four with the Bruins, who they've had three wins against already, five against the Flyers, and five against the Rangers. 26 games remaining. The Islanders right now are averaging an expected goals of 2.3 and expected goals against of 1.9. Obviously, those are low. The Islanders are scoring close to three goals a game and are giving up about 1.9, two goals against per game 
but they are winning. They are in first place in the East Division by four points, two wins, or, you know, two wins, two overtime losses if you want to get specific. They're sixth right now in save percentage, seventh in shooting percentage. So their results aren't fluky. They've got a good save percentage. They've got a good shooting percentage. It's not over-relying on one or the other. They are both a little high. Usually those are both going to be a touch lower. Their PDO, their shooting percentage plus save percentage is over 100, which usually means they're going to regress a little bit. But the expected goals, the expected goals tell you that what the Islanders are doing is working to a decent extent, and they are a dangerous hockey team. They've gotten some nice production from Ricky Oliver Wallstrom. Kiefer Bellows is showing you a little bit of flashes here and there. they got to address the gaps in their lineup. They have to trade for another winger. They needed to trade for another winger before Anders Lee suffered that knee injury. And without Pajot, without Pajot for any extended period of time, Pajot is COVID positive. He's got to sit for two weeks. The Islanders are going to run into issues in their lineup because they just don't have enough forwards. Uh, unless Wallstrom keeps up at this pace and Bellows keeps improving, they just aren't going to have enough scoring depth. So even though they're going to play f- sound fundamental hockey where they're not going to give up a lot of chances, it's really hard to win every hockey game 2-1 to one or 1-0. One to As a Ranger fan, I know way too much about that from 2010 to about 2013. Winning every game 2-1 to one with superhuman goaltending and good defense is really, really hard to do. And if you're only able to score one or two goals a game, you have a really hard time winning in the NHL. And I do want to touch a little bit more on this because I was talking about this with Ethan the other day as a perspective gambling opportunity to bet the Islanders to win the East Division. I suggested it last week when they were plus 500 before the Anders Lee injury and before they had won a few more games this past week. They're on like a seven or eight game winning streak as of the moment after Saturday's win, Sunday's win rather. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure off the top of my head if that was win number eight or win number seven, but they're on a nice roll here. They are now the betting favorite at plus 200. I said it's worth the odds based on who they have left because you figure. They'll probably beat Buffalo both times. They'll probably beat the Devils both times. They'll probably win three out of five, four out of five against the Rangers. They'll probably win two or three out of five against the Flyers. They probably split with Washington. I think the Islanders are in a good position to win this division outright now. Uh, Washington has gotten some really fluky play. Their shooting percentage is really high. Pittsburgh... The Islanders historically have given Pittsburgh headaches because Pittsburgh is a high-skill team that likes to work through transition, works to work. Those cross-crease passes is not particularly good at banging in the corners and grinding and cycling. They prefer to do the high-end skill stuff, and the Islanders, like I said before, they clog up that middle either in transition or in the offensive zone and make it really difficult on those teams to score. So I like where the Islanders are, and... I know Courtney, my friend Courtney's going to be very mad at me, my friend Katie, not my girlfriend Katie, different person, my friend Katie is going to be upset suggesting this, Islanders got to go get Taylor Hall, man, Sabres are not going to be making the playoffs, unless they win like every single game they have the rest of the way, we're talking about a team that has six wins this season and has been shut out five times, not good, not good, Taylor Hall has not played well in Buffalo, you can tell. He had a bout with COVID-19. He doesn't really have his legs. He doesn't have that explosive skating. He doesn't look as fast as he did. He doesn't have as much finish. He's not scoring as much. 
but Taylor Hall is a very good hockey player at his core. You're getting him at, you know, the prorated rate for the remainder of the season. The Islanders will not have to move any money because they put Anders Lee on the long-term injured reserve list, and if he would be out until the postseason, if you have him back for the postseason, there is no salary cap in the postseason. So, essentially, you could get Hall in the Islanders lineup right away. He doesn't have to go through the two-week COVID protocol that teams trading between Canada and the United States do. Probably just a few two- or three-day period between teams and the United States. Just, you know, make sure he's not positive. He caught a case between traveling from point A to point B. But you get him in the lineup pretty quick. And then if Lee is able to come back down the road, you get both of them in the lineup. Don't have to worry about the cap in playoffs. And, you know, you only get so many chances to go to the ball with Cinderella if you're the Islanders. This core... You're going to have to get Barzell that big extension. You're banking on your young guys like Dobson, like Bellows, like Wallstrom to keep improving as they go. And you're banking on Brock Nelson and Josh Bailey not regressing off a cliff yet. You are walking a very fine line, Lou Lamarillo. There is not a ton of runway to keep this group together as it's currently constructed. They had to give away Devontae's for draft selection last year to get salary cap compliant. I don't like the Islanders as a hockey team. Their fans at large do irritate me the way they have to make everything about the Rangers. But credit where credit is due. Barry Trotz is a very good hockey coach. He's got that team humming. Adam Pellick, Ryan Pulak, both playing very well. Matt Barzell is a top, probably 15 player in the entire league. Anthony Beauvillier is a very talented winger. Islanders could definitely make some noise come postseason time. They play a style of hockey that is, in the regular season, that is well-suited for the playoffs, where they don't give up that middle of the ice easily. They make their goalies' lives easier, make it where the goalie only has to make a few difficult saves per game. All those things bleed into each other and make for an effective hockey team. Islanders are a case study and what good coaching and coaching to your team's strengths can do. Could the Islanders play a different style? Probably. But Barry Trotz knows what works, and he's got players that can execute that system perfectly. My next question I have here is, why is nobody talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning? Yes, I understand that no one really cares because, you know, Tampa Bay, Florida, not really a dominant media market, and so much of the hockey news media is driven by a Toronto, Montreal, or Edmonton-centric view of things, and in the United States, there's not really a, a throng of hockey coverage. What hockey coverage there is is usually related to just feature stories like the Emily Kaplan-type stuff at ESPN, the trade stuff you see from like Bob McKenzie that gets on to NBC but full stop I mean the athletic does good coverage but athletic is a subscription service it's behind a paywall it doesn't drive the news conversation like a sports net or like a TSN does I want to say I didn't expect Tampa Bay to be as good as they were last year just no Kucherov, he had a hip injury, he had to have surgery, it's going to take him a while. And I was wrong. Uh, yeah, Carolina's in first place right now. They've played one game more, I believe. 
they have a one-point lead. They've played one fewer game Tampa Bay has than Carolina. Tampa Bay's loaded still, man. It's the same team as last year, except they haven't had Kucherov, and they're still playing well. Vasilevsky is every bit a Vezina, goal, Vezina Award-winning goaltender to be. Victor Hedman has thrown his hat well into the ring for Norris Trophy as the league's best defenseman. Braden Point is a miraculously talented player at 5'10", and is someone that scouts should be punching themselves for letting fall past the first round. You're still talking about a team that features Steven Stamkos playing at a pretty high level. Depth guys like Andre Pallott, Tyler Johnson, Barkley Goudreau, Blake Coleman. On the back end, you still have Ryan McDonough, Mikhail Sergachev. It's a loaded hockey team. Uh, Anthony Sorelli is a really good two-way center. Tampa Bay is just as loaded as they were last year, and I feel like no one's talking about Tampa Bay as a legitimate cup contender because it's so hard to win Stanley Cups back-to-back. And while I know it's hard to win Stanley Cups back-to-back, at the same time, this is going to sound very dumb, but if any team could run it back, it would be the team that won after being in the bubble for two months. I really like that group Tampa Bay has. When you can have either McDonough or Hedman on the ice for 45-ish minutes a night, it's pretty good. John Cooper, their head coach, Hofstra product. Yes, Hofstra on Long Island product. One of the best coaches in the entire league. And, and, they're going to get Nikita Kucherov back by the playoffs. And it's worth bringing this up. I know Elliot Friedman talked about this on Hockey Night in Canada during intermission on Saturday night. He's been skating with the team for a few days now. He had a couple optional skates he participated in. And there are murmurs around the league, the things I've read from a few different places, Athletic, Sportsnet, TSN, a couple places. They feel like Kucherov will probably be ready before the playoffs, even though the timeline was roughly the midpoint of April for his return from that surgery for his hip. But... People seem to think he's going to be ready to go sooner and that the Lightning are going to make the conscientious choice to not activate him and to keep him on long-term injured reserve until the postseason starts and then they'll activate him like the Chicago Blackhawks did back in 2015 with uh, Patrick Kane, who had suffered a long-term injury and was out for a significant amount of time. They made a trade at the deadline. They would have been over the cap if they had activated Kane prior to the start of the playoffs. But they felt they didn't need him, so they banked that extra cap space. They had Kane take all the time he needed to get ready. Kane came back for the first round, and the Blackhawks went on and won that Stanley Cup, their third in five years. I don't know if the Lightning are going to run it back, but that lineup is as talented as anyone. Uh, That Central Division, aside from Carolina, is pretty soft in the middle. You're talking about... You know, Nashville has really underperformed. Nashville is the sec- in seventh place in that division. You're talking about Dallas, who has really struggled so far. Dallas is sitting out of the money <laughs> to say they are in sixth place. Right now, your top four in that division is Carolina, Tampa, the Florida Panthers, and the Chicago Blackhawks. Blackhawks are a very interesting story. Alyssa, who was on a couple of weeks ago, closer to the start of the season, will be back. I'm going to try to get Alyssa back next week to talk about the uh, the Jeremy Culleton Rehabilitation Project and the Kevin Likening goaltender miraculous 
project, we'll call it, the emergence of Kevin Lankinen, the solid play they've gotten from Malcolm Subban, Patrick Kane playing hard trophy well. Blackhawks are a very interesting story, but to circling back, Tampa Bay is looking at a first-round series with either Florida or Chicago more than likely, and, you know, I would take them against either of those teams pretty convincingly. I wouldn't be too worried, and then... Once you get to that second round, it gets reseeded, and we'd have to see. But full stop, Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is a team whose expected goals are higher than their actual goals for right now, 51.5 to 48. So there's a little bit of room for improvement there. They've got decent goaltending right now. They're nine, they're 9-3-0, which is really good for goaltending. 9.02 shooting percentage, a little bit low, a little bit low. You'd expect that to be higher, closer to 10, especially with some of the shooting talent they have. Fourth in the entire league in goals for, like actual goals for. 11th in expected goals for. But both are in the not positive. They're both over, they're 50, over 50% in both categories. And they still get to add Nikita Kucherov in a few weeks. So, assuming Tampa Bay has no other setbacks, no other injuries, you drop Kucherov into this lineup, there's no reason they cannot run it back. Question number four. Will anyone else put themselves in that elite tier? Right now, I have the elite tier as the Vegas Golden Knights, the Colorado Avalanche, the Tampa Bay Lightning, and the Boston Bruins. There are other teams, I think, that are capable of getting there, but it remains to be seen if any of them can genuinely reach that level. And I know a lot of the time, teams that aren't amongst the elite end up making the cup final. Like, the Dallas Stars last year were not the third best team, fourth best team in the entire West last year, but they got there because they survived. They got some superhuman goaltending from... <laughs> um, Anton Hudobin and Jake Ottinger, but I make this point all the time. Talent does not make a huge difference in hockey because the variance is so high. I cite this article all of the time, both on the show here on the Up and Bold GM podcast and in things I write. Study a number of years ago, hockey has the highest variance between talent and outcome. So the most talented team does not win most of the time in hockey. Of all the four major sports, hockey is the sport where the most talented team wins the least. Basketball, unsurprisingly, is the sport where the most talented team wins the most. So when we talk about Vegas, Colorado, Tampa, and Boston, teams with multiple lines that can score goals at even strength because – Come playoff time, you expect everyone's special teams to kind of cancel out. So you expect your forwards who are good at even strength to be bearing the brunt of the load. You don't expect to win a lot in the playoffs if a majority of your offense is coming from non-even strength situations. All of these teams have gotten pretty good to elite goaltending. Vegas with Marc-Andre Fleury, Colorado with Grubauer, Tampa Bay with Vasilevsky, and Boston with both Yarrow Halak and Tuka Rask, who are both pretty good goalies. They're not quite, they're not a 1A, 1B, but Halak is such a good backup, it's worth mentioning. And whenever Robin Lehner of Vegas does get fully healthy, we know how good Robin Lehner can be. He went on that crazy run with the Islanders. He was really good last year for both the Blackhawks and then the, the Golden Knights once they acquired him at the trade deadline. But 
generally speaking, I don't think anyone can really compete with them as they are right now. That doesn't mean there isn't time to change. I have in the tier of teams that could potentially threaten those, the Maple Leafs, the Hurricanes, the Blues, and the Islanders. The Islanders is contingent upon them making a trade for another winger because right now that top six is a little light with no no um, Gabriel Peugeot and no Anders Lee. They get another winger in there until the, they those guys get healthy. That's fine, but... Toronto, like I said in the first segment of the show, I need to see more on the back end. I need to see more consistency night to night. And Carolina, I talk myself into Carolina every single year. Their underlying numbers are terrific. They drive play at even strength. They don't give up a lot of chances. They make their goalie's life very easy. They've got four good lines three good defensive pairs where they are healthy scratching guys who would start on other teams who could be in the top four. I think on some teams, Jake Bean, the guy who's been getting healthy scratch a lot for Carolina, is a top four lefty on some teams. And he just doesn't get in the lineup because they just have so many guys. I mean, Dougie Hamilton, Brent Pesci, Brady Shea. They have so many quality defensemen. I mean, they put Jake Gardner on waivers today to send him to the taxi squad. Jake Gardner's a good NHL defenseman. Yeah, his back is jacked up from that injury he had a couple years ago, but he's still better than what a lot of teams are rolling out there on second and third pair left D. I'd take Jake Gardner over Jack Johnson or Brendan Smith. He can pass the puck. He can shoot the puck with a little bit of finesse on his stick where it's not just every fiber of his being into putting an accurate pass together. And then the Blues. Blues are pretty talented. I mean, they just got Tarasenko back, who was out for a while. He had a hip injury like Kucherov did, but Tarasenko, I believe, had to get surgery on both hips. Missed a lot of last year. Didn't play a ton. Got hurt again in that playoff and then came back just last week. He had a goal the other day. He's on my fantasy hockey team. I stashed him for a while on injured reserve, brought him back. It's another guy who's a goal every other game kind of guy who I just was able to stash for a while. I had the roster spot. It was very helpful. Blues are there. Yeah, they swapped out Petrangelo for Tori Krug, but Tori Krug and Justin Falk have been a really good defensive pair together. They do not concede a lot of scoring chances, and they create a lot. That's your magic. I don't agree with the contract extension, the 6 by 6 deal they gave Jordan Bennington. Bennington, like most goalies, is very streaky, and just long-term deals at that position are not good business just because goaltending is so volatile year-to-year where even if a goalie has good year, bad year, good year, bad year, you're better off just rolling year-to-year two- or three-year deals as opposed to six. Like, I get Bennington probably would have wanted more money per year if he was only getting a two-year deal, but at the same time, that's probably a better investment if you're the Blues because if Bennington actually turns back into a pumpkin from instead of Cinderella's carriage at any point, like permanently, you're not stuck with him like the Canadians are with Carey Price, where you are never going to get another team to take that deal, and he's got the full no movement. Bennington, you see the flashes of brilliance, but you also see him like, you know, fake throwing punches at guys on the Sharks after giving up four goals in a period. So he's kind of a head case. Granted, all goalies are a little bit weird. That's just how goalies are. But I would like 
who have seen the Blues exercise a little bit better judgment there because they've been making prudent moves. They didn't overpay Colton Pareko. They did overpay Tory Krug a little bit, but that's fine. They traded for Falk a couple of years ago at the deadline from Carolina, who's been pretty good there. He's really excelled at, with Tory Krug as his partner, Justin Falk has. You're talking about a team that still has Ryan O'Reilly, that still has Jaden Schwartz, still has Vladimir Tarasenko coming back from that injury. There's talent in that lineup. There is considerable talent in that lineup. Craig Berube is a pretty good coach. They won the Cup two years ago now. I don't think they are Cup good, but they have the experience, and they have a goaltender who's capable of getting hot at the right time. So even though I don't think they are as talented as Carolina or Toronto, they have the situational factors that benefit them, and they have the added benefit of playing in a lesser division, I'll say, a less talented division where they're not in any real danger of either the Kings or the Coyotes passing them. It'll be a matter of what order the teams in the West finish, because right now it's Vegas, Minnesota, Colorado, and then the Blues in fourth. I think Colorado will probably catch Minnesota at some point, but the Wild have been playing really well, man. And speaking of the Wild, looking at a Wild episode for next week, the week after St. Patrick's Day, have the guest lined up, just got to find out when she's available to record what day. But we're going to talk a little bit of Kirill Kaprizov, we're going to talk Matt Zuccarello, good old friend Matt Zuccarello, Matt Dumbo, who's been really good for a long time, Jared Spurgeon, who's been good, really, really good for a long time. It's a talented hockey team that, like a lot of teams around the league, because the hockey landscape in the United States in terms of media coverage is so barren, not a lot of people know who or who's even on the Minnesota Wild. Like, I remember talking about this the other day with someone, and we were talking about how Minnesota is such a hotbed of hockey in the United States, where you're talking about the University of Minnesota Golden Gophers, the college hockey program is so historically good, it's been... Going back, like, we're talking about, like, going back to, like, the 80s, the 70s, where hockey was strictly just Massachusetts, the New England area, Minnesota, and Michigan. Back then, Minnesota was one of the main producers of American NHL players because the league was very, very heavily Canadian back then. And we're talking about, like, 90-ish percent Canadian. Now it's close to, like, 60-something percent, 50-something percent Canadian as opposed to what it was back then. And the Wild just don't really have a national footprint as Minnesota's hockey team because they didn't get featured spots on NBCSN for a lot of this decade because they didn't have any draw-worthy players. Like, Zach Parisi was a marquee name when they signed him, as was Ryan Suter, but neither of those guys was enticing enough to NBC to be like, we want the Wild on Wednesday night hockey. We want the Wild against the Blues on Wednesday night hockey. Yeah, yeah, the Wild got on national TV during the playoffs, and it was usually losing to the Blackhawks or the Blues, but it's not the same thing. you got to build up these teams because the Wild are very exciting right now. I've watched a lot of Minnesota Wild hockey this year. Joel Eriksson-Eck, the center they've had playing a lot with Zuccarello and Kaprizov. Nick Bukestad has had a nice bounce-back year playing center at points between those two. It's a talented hockey team. Jordan Greenway, who had a really nice World Juniors for the United States a number of years ago. It's a talented hockey team. 
and they play such a fundamentally sound game. They do not give up scoring chances. And that is something I've said a lot as a compliment of hockey teams because the game is so heavily skewed towards offense right now that the teams that don't give up scoring chances are noteworthy. It's distinguishing. It's a, this team actually has some good underlying numbers. They're doing good things. All right, if they're not giving up chances, are they creating offense? Oh, they're creating offense. Are they creating sustainable offense? They are. Okay. So are they scoring goals? If yes, okay, that's actually a good hockey team. Yes. If they're not, that's a team you expect to get it together. You expect to have a bounce back at some point where they go on a hot streak. They go on a shooting bender, as stats people like to call it. Like I know Jay Fresh Hockey likes to call it a shooting bender where a guy goes crazy. It's like Mika Zibanejad in March of 2020 where he was shooting something like 19% on the year, which is like double what anyone shoots in a normal year. Like a team usually shoots between 9 and 10. Most players shoot between 9 and 12% in a given year. So for someone like Zabinijad to shoot 19, 18.5% absurd. The Wild don't do that. The Wild score pretty sustainably. Kaprizov is going to win the Calder Trophy. Yes, he's not He's not a rookie to professional hockey because he's 23 years old. He's been playing in the KHL since he was 18. But he's eligible for the award, and it's not close. Lafreniere hasn't had a, a good statistical season, even though his underlying numbers are good. Ty Smith on the Devils has had a nice season, but for a defenseman to win, he's going to have to put up counting stats like Kale McCarr did last year or, or uh, Quinn Hughes did last year or Adam Fox did last year. Ty Smith's not doing that. Uh, right now, I think the second-place guy in the Calder, for gambling odds at least, is Kevin Lykanen, the uh, goaltender for the Blackhawks. So Kaprizov's got it pretty much locked up. He's playing with Matt Zuccarello, who I've adored for his entire NHL career. Really nice guy. Met him more than once. Always willing to stop and talk to people before and after games. Always willing to talk, sign autographs for kids, that kind of thing. A genuinely good guy, really good hockey player for a long time. It kind of seems like after he got traded to Dallas at the deadline and then went to Minnesota, he didn't have the same vision, the same touch. He's got it back now that he's playing with a creative guy like Kaprizov, who's just such a talented skater. He's got a wicked shot, such a good finisher. Zuccarello's having a nice bounce back here. I double-dipped on those two on my fantasy hockey team. My fantasy hockey team is actually starting to put it together. Got a nice sustainable run here of guys who have nice underlying numbers. Yes, I build even my fantasy hockey team like a nerd. Sorry, but I like winning, and winning is fun. Underlying numbers. Yes, I failed the Algebra two Regents exam two separate times. Didn't ever pass it. I have a regular New York State Regents diploma. But I like math when it comes to hockey because it gives me a better understanding and doesn't make me rewatch an entire hockey game to understand how someone is actually playing. That's the beauty of it. Yes, I do watch most of the Minnesota Wild game, but on a quick reference, if I want to see how Kirill Kaprizov played in a given game, I can go look at his shot map for a game. I don't have to go watch an entire 60-minute hockey game with all the stoppages to see how he played. I can look. Oh, when he was on the ice, the Wild had shots from here, 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 and here, and shots against here, here, and here. Those shots added up for this many things. 
That is the beauty of advanced statistics and something I would like to help spread to more people and something I'm working on. I've been tinkering with an expected goals video, a Corsi video, a Fenwick video, but my video editing skills are rusty. I'm two years out of journalism school. It's been a while since I've had to use Premiere or Final Cut. We're working on it. I'm trying to get better at it so that way I can publish them then share the good word because the more people understand hockey, the more they can demand better things from their hockey team and the more public pressure on general managers and coaches to give their fans something to cheer for the better there are too many coaches and too many gms who get to skate by because the public believes in them simply because they work for their favorite team and it's really bad at hockey like even more so than football all of that said went over an hour today but this is a juicy group of questions last question question number five what players get moved? Taylor Hall. Philip Forsberg? Elias Ekholm? Rakeem Raquel? Maybe Alex Georgiev? Kevin LeBanc? Jack Eichel? Okay. So, let's break this up. No way Jack Eichel doesn't get moved till the summer. He just makes too much money on in the season right now. And there are... I mean, yeah, the Rangers and the Kings can make it work. They have the cap space, but I think that, that that's a summer move. Jack Eichel doesn't get traded in season because you got to make the math work. Taylor Hall, expiring contract. He fetched two draft picks and two prospects for the Devils in the 2019-2020 season to the Coyotes. He probably gets one A prospect, a B prospect, and a draft selection. I don't know if the Islanders have the package for that. That would likely mean something like Kiefer Bellows, a first-round pick, and then like both of the picks from the Devontae's trade, and maybe that gets it done. You probably got to pay a little bit more for Taylor Hall, who has a lot of upside. Yes, he's on an expensive deal, but it's prorated, and the Islanders have room because Lee is on long-term injured reserve. Philip Forsberg in Nashville. Someone I don't expect to get moved, but has been rumored to have been available that teams around the league have called on to check in what David Poyle, the Nashville GM, would want for him. Elias Ekholm, I do expect to be moved. He will get a nice bounty. He's a top four left-handed defenseman. He can play good minutes. He can play the penalty kill. He's not a liability. You can trust him in the playoffs. Nashville is going to have to start a retool, if not a rebuild, and Ekholm has this year, the 2021 season, and then the 2021-2022 season on his contract. So you're getting two separate playoff runs on that contract, which is something teams do value. You're going to have to give up a little more because you're getting two separate playoff runs with him. And yes, I just realized as I was saying that, that I've been calling Matthias Ekholm Elias Ekholm because I was thinking of Elias Lindholm who is a forward on the Calgary Flames because I am doing a Calgary Flames episode of the show this week and I was doing a lot of reading and I was listening to the Locked On Flames podcast to kind of get my brain right for the guest on Tuesday because when I have a guest on, I like to know what I'm talking about. I like to be prepared. Also, while I was in the process of recording this, locked up a guest for Wednesday, which will be the episode that goes up on Thursday. We're going to talk about the Philadelphia Flyers. And just hockey fan cams? Yes, hockey fan cams. We're going to talk about digital media creation, which is always fun. And 
some stuff with creative people, which is going to make for a very entertaining episode. Of all the guys I mentioned in Who Could Be Moved, I expect the Sharks to move Kevin LeBanc. I do expect the Ducks to move Rakeem Raquel. I do expect Nashville to move Matthias Eckholm. And I do expect the Buffalo Sabres to trade Taylor Hall. Anyone else really out there? Not really off the top of my head. There are possibilities. I know Kyle Palmieri, the winger on the Devils, could possibly be moved. He's an expiring contract, but if a team's going to trade for him, it's probably going to be the Islanders because Lula Murillo, who likes getting his guys back. This is a guy who tried to trade for Zach Parisi at last year's deadline. He tried trading for Kyle Palmieri last year. He ended up with Andy Green. No Zach Parisi. No Miku Koivu. But I will say, if the Islanders did end up with uh, Miku Koivu and Zach Parisi last year, they probably could have beaten Tampa. Granted, they would have also had to have gotten Pajot as well on top of those guys, but that, that would have been a really talented team. And it's really going to be one long game of chicken between these teams that feel like they're pretty close to a cup pretty close to being an elite team that only need one or two more moves. There are several teams circling Nashville right now thinking about Matias Ekholm. Not Elias. Yes, Matias. I know I said Elias more than once at, during the process of this episode, but like I said, Elias Lindholm on the brink. Matias Ekholm will go to a good team. I could see him going to Winnipeg. I could see him going to Boston, to Toronto. He's in high command. Every team can always use another defenseman. Every team can always use a third or fourth line forward, especially a center, someone who can be trusted to kill penalties. Those are things that are extremely valuable come trade deadline time. I hope this episode of five NHL questions made you a little bit smarter today. Touched base on a lot of players, a lot of teams, a lot of advanced statistics. My goal when I'm doing the solo episodes is to be informative, to be news analysis as opposed to uh, news breaking or more of the conversational stuff that I have when I have guests on the show. Guests are usually me more talking about them, me trying to understand them, pick their brain about where their favorite team is at and their thought process behind that. Whereas when I'm doing the show by myself, I'm trying to be informative and helpful. You know, like I always say, the more information you have before you make any decision, the better. Especially when you're gambling. Like I said, at no at, during football season, especially at any point when I was giving picks, get as much information as possible. I personally think these things about hockey, but by all means, go to Evolving Wild. Go to Money Puck. Go to Natural Statric. Follow Top Down Hockey. Follow J Fresh Hockey. Go and get as much information as you can before you make your opinions, before you place bets, before you tweet. Always look things up before you tweet. Otherwise, you end up calling someone by the wrong name multiple times during the process of your podcast. With all of that said, I will see you guys tomorrow. We're probably going to talk a little NFL because the legal tampering period starts on Monday. And, oh boy, I can't wait to see what the Jets and Jaguars do. I'll see you guys then.